Good morning and Happy New Year. It's my privilege to open God's Word for us this morning and I'm going to begin by reading a passage from the very end of the Old Testament, uh, the book of Malachi chapter 3 and we're going to read from verses 6 to 12. Malachi writes, and God is speaking, I the Lord do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour you down a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. As I was preparing this passage to uh, bring to you this morning, I was both encouraged by it and challenged by it. Uh, and I trust that we might all share in that encouragement and that challenge this morning. And the words I want to focus our thoughts around are the question that we have there in verse 8. Will man rob God? Will man rob God? Well, here we are, January, beginning of a, a new year. As I'm sure many people know, January is named after the Roman god Janus. Janus famously had two faces. One was looking forward and one was looking backward. And when we come to a new year, that's what we tend to do, isn't it? We look back over the past year, we look forward to the new year. And so this morning, as we look back for a while, let us take stock and in the light of the words we're thinking of, ask ourselves this question. Over the last year, have I in any way robbed God of something that I should have given to him? Have I robbed God of that which is his due? And as we look forward to the new year, what do I desire? What do I want in the new year? And surely many of us would say we want to know more of God's blessing in our life, in the life of the church, indeed in the life of the country. We want to know God more and we want more of his blessing. And so as we look back and as we look forward, Malachi can help us in this, help us to examine ourselves and he shows us how to prepare for God to bless us. This passage contains challenge and encouragement. But Malachi is the author of this, and who was Malachi? Well, we don't really know very much about him at all. His name means my messenger. We know he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. There was a gap of some 400, 450 years until John the Baptist came along. 
He lived in the middle of the 5th century BC at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Many will be familiar with that through rooted groups over the last few weeks. The temple of Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. Uh, But we know it was a time of severe economic recession. The nation was in a mess morally and spiritually. And Malachi's message can be summed up like this that God's people had a form of religion, but there was no reality there. There was no relationship with God there. Indeed, there was disobedience. And so Malachi pleads with people to return to God that they might know his blessing again. And as we just think of the, the time in Malachi's day, I'm sure we can quickly see parallels with our own situation and our own land today. So in verses 6 to 12 here of Malachi chapter 3, we want to pick out three truths about God. The first one in verse 6 is that God is unchanging. We read, I, the Lord, do not change. Now that's an encouragement. That's a great encouragement for us. The God of last year is the God of next year. The God of history is the God of the future. Our God doesn't change. He is consistent. We know where we are with God. He's not like us. We can be moody. We can be fickle. We can be unpredictable. Uh, We don't always know how we or other people are going to react in any given situation. I can remember a number of years ago when I was teaching that quite often I could hear some of the pupils in my class at the beginning of a lesson muster to themselves, what kind of mood is he in today? Is he in a good mood or is he in a grumpy mood? Uh, And if they came to the conclusion that I was in a grumpy mood, uh, then they would know it's really not worth playing around in the lesson today because we'll be in trouble. He's on perhaps a short fuse. But if they come to the conclusion that I was in quite a, a nice mood, then they might feel more relaxed and able perhaps to have a a bit of a joke and a bit of a laugh in the lesson uh, without fear that they were going to be told off too quickly or reprimanded too sharply. We're all a bit like that, aren't we? Our mood can depend on how we get up in the morning, what the weather's like, what our health is like, how we're feeling, how other people are treating us, all sorts of different things. But with God, none of those things are true. He is unchanging. Let's note that his character is unchanging. We know exactly where we are with God. I think one of the finest descriptions of God's character, certainly in the Old Testament, is at the very end of the prophecy of Micah, chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. Listen to how Micah describes God. And this is the unchanging God. So he is still the same today. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And God is exactly the same today. He is a God who still forgives sins, a God of compassion, 
a God of mercy, a God of grace, so we know exactly where we are with God. Nothing ever takes him by surprise. So we have a solid foundation for our faith and our hope in him. But not only is his character unchanging, his commands are unchanging as well. Uh, we can note here, uh, as we look at our passage in, in verse 7, God says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And those statutes, those commands or requirements of God haven't changed. They hadn't changed in Malachi's day and they haven't changed in our day. Those requirements that Jesus summarized as loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and loving your neighbour as yourself. And if we are honest with ourselves and we look back over the past year, we've fallen, I'm sure, at the first hurdle. I'm sure that we could all say we have not loved God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind and all of our strength. And we haven't loved our neighbour always as ourself. So what can we do about it? Well, we can also note that God's invitation is also unchanging. Because look at what he says in verse 7. He says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That is God's unchanging invitation to those of his people who have wandered away, who have disobeyed, who haven't lived as they should have done, whose hearts have grown cold towards him. He says, return to me and I will return to you. And to those who have never turned to God in the first place, for those who have never trusted Jesus to be their Saviour and their Lord, he says, turn to me, and I will turn to you. How do we know that this is an unchanging invitation? I'll show you. Some 400 years earlier, the prophet Joel, Joel 2 verse 12, God says there, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 300 years earlier, through the prophet Hosea, chapter 14, verse 1, God said, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. About a 100 years earlier, through the prophet Zechariah, chapter 1, verse 3, God says, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts and I will return to you. Then some 400, 450 years later, Jesus says, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, not only is God's character unchanging, not only are his commands unchanging, but his invitation is unchanging as well. And we have the same invitation today, that same invitation to turn or return to the Lord our God. If we've never come to God through Jesus Christ, the invitation is, come now. If we are amongst God's people, but we know that we have wandered away, we know that our hearts have perhaps grown cold towards God, we haven't loved him as we should, we haven't lived for him as we should, we haven't obeyed him as we should, we too can hear that invitation, return to me and I will return to you. God is inviting his people 
to return. Those who have never trusted to turn for the first time. And you know, there are two things we need to do, aren't there, with an invitation. If we have an invitation, maybe, shall we say, to a wedding. The first thing we have to do is accept the invitation. And we reply and say, thank you for the invitation. Yes, I am coming. But we need to do more than that. We not only accept the invitation, we actually have to do something about it. We have to come. We have to come to that wedding. We have to make the effort to put our nice clothes on and drive or be driven to where the wedding is and actually to go and to come to it. Same is true with God. We have to know what the invitation is. We have to accept it and believe it. But we have to do more than that. We have to come. We have to say, I am coming, Jesus, to you, trusting you, asking you to forgive me for all the wrong things that I've done. I believe that you are my Lord and my Saviour. And what better day is there to turn or return to our God than the first day of a new year? It can happen even now. So we can see here that we have a God who doesn't change. That's a great encouragement. But the second thing we note about God is that God can be robbed. And here we have a great challenge. You see, the Jews of Malachi's day, they ask God, end of verse 7, how shall we return? And God answers their question with a question of his own. Will man rob God? That must have come as a severe challenge to their thinking. They certainly weren't expecting that. God is saying, you've been robbing me. And before you return, you need to do something about it. Will man rob God? It's a powerful question. And we need to think this morning on this first day of a new year. Have I been robbing God over the last year in any way? By not giving him what is due to him. It's a bit like we rob the government if we don't pay all of our taxes. Here, specifically, he mentions tithes, but there is more to it than that. We can rob God in a number of ways. Let me just give a few that we can think about for a few moments this morning. We can rob God of worship. Psalm 29 verse 2 says, Worship the Lord in the splendour of holiness. Ten Commandments say, you shall have no other gods beside me. God deserves all of our worship. But what do we mean by worship? Sometimes I think we don't fully understand that word in these days. For many people, worship is singing, praising God, to do with music. That's a part of it, an important part, but it's certainly not all of it. The famous... Anglican theologian who died about two years ago, Jim Packer. Many of you will know Jim Packer, perhaps through reading his book, Knowing God or other books. He has a definition of worship. Let me just say, by the way, before we look at it, that we have something of a, a remote connection with Jim Packer at where we are here because uh, his wife, Kitty, came from Llanderbeer. And she actually became a Christian in a student mission in Ammonford in the late 1940s. So we have that kind of link there with, with Jim Packer through, through his wife. And he defines worship in this way. He says there are six activities in worship. 
Worship includes praising God, and very much that's where the music and the singing comes in. Praise him for all he is and all he's done. It includes thanking God. That can also be done in music and in words and in prayer. Thank God for his goodness and his grace to us. He then goes on to say that worship includes asking God. That really is prayer, praying for our needs and for the needs of others and for God's glory and for his will to be done on earth. Then the fourth thing he says, it is offering to God our service, offering ourselves to God. The fifth thing is learning of God, learning through his word, both privately as we read his word day by day, as we gather together in public corporately to listen to God's word being opened, we learn from God through his word. And the final activity in worship, says Jim Packer, is telling others of him, what we might call evangelism. But it doesn't have to be an organised thing or a big upfront thing, just telling other people about what the Lord means to us, who he is, chatting to them and so we have those six activities that Jim Packer says constitute worship and if we think of those for a moment can we say in the last year we have not robbed God of any of those things if we are not giving God our worship then we're robbing him but we can also rob God of time we all have 24 hours in a day but the question is, how do we use it? Well, there are certain biblical principles about time. Time, we are told, is fleeting. In Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. And it's true as the years go by and the older we get, the more we realise the truth of how fleeting time is. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, says David. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Time passes quickly and it is fleeting. We're also told in Psalm 90 and verse 12 that we should number our days. Teach us to number our days aright. In other words, don't waste a day. Take note of each day and use them, yes, for God's glory. And in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 tells us to make the best use of our time. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So what do we do with our time? We need time for our family. We need time for our work. We need time for leisure. We need time to rest. We need time for God. And then all of those areas of our life that we need time for, how often is it, I wonder, that it's time for God that gets squeezed out? And we are robbing God of the time that he is worthy of and that he deserves. If we are robbing God of time, then we are missing out on his blessing and then we can think of another area we can think of our talents God has given each of us gifts talents abilities to be used in his service and everyone's talents everyone's gifts are needed 
for the church to function effectively. We all have a whole range of gifts and talents and abilities in, in every church. Some have the ability to teach. Some have the ability to talk to other people. Some are good at cooking. Some are good at cleaning. Some are good at organizing things. Some are good at chatting. Some are good at seeing what needs to be done. A whole range of things and many more as well. Each of us has certain abilities and gifts that God has given and they are to be used for the church to function effectively, to be used in God's service. And if we are holding back in an area where we are able to exercise the gifts that God has given, then we are robbing God of that which is his due. So we've noted we can rob God of worship, of time, of our talents. And then we come to the specific area that Malachi refers to here. We can rob God of our tithes and our offerings. Talking here, of course, about money. Giving the full tithe is evidence here of their repentance and of their returning to the Lord. So let's think for a moment about this issue of, of tithing. Tithing means, of course, 10% of our income we return to the Lord. It's often not easy for a pastor to talk about tithing because uh, people may, you may think that people are thinking that he's after money for himself. Uh, and so, since I'm not in that position, just a few minutes on this. What actually does it mean to give our tithes to the Lord? You see, some people argue that we shouldn't be doing that today because tithing is a part of the law of Moses. And we're not under law, we're under grace, so we don't have to do it. That's not actually true, because tithing predates the law. Abraham tithed, Jacob tithed, and indeed under the law itself, under the Mosaic law, there are three different tithes. For the Jew, there was a tithe for the Levites and the priests. There was a tithe for the religious festivals in Jerusalem. And every three years, there was a tithe for the poor and needy. So the Jews were actually giving 23% over three years in their tithes to the Lord. But what does the New Testament say about this? In the New Testament, there are two main principles of giving. The first is that we give freely and willingly. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It shows us that giving is an obligation. Each one must give. It's an obligation, not an option for a Christian. But there's no compulsion about the amount, as he has decided in his heart. The New Testament doesn't command a tithe. But many people would argue, and I would be one of them, that if 10% were given under the law, that should really be the minimum under grace, that the tithe is the floor and not the ceiling. We give freely and we give willingly. And the second principle is this. We are to give regularly and proportionately. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So we are to give carefully not haphazardly it's regularly the first day of the week 
could be the first day of the month. It depends how we may receive our money. That doesn't matter. It's regularly, it's proportionately. Let me tell you about one man who did this in a remarkable way. When I mention his name, it may ring a bell. His name is William Colgate. If I say Colgate, you're probably thinking toothpaste. And yeah, that's the one. That is the Colgate. He was an interesting man. William Colgate was actually born in England, but his family migrated to America when he was a boy. They emigrated to America and they were living in Hartford in Maryland. But they were very poor. Uh, they were farmers and they were trying to set up a new farm and uh, they were very poor. So age 16, William Colgate's father couldn't afford to keep him anymore. So he had to leave home and go and find a job. Indeed, he left home and all that he possessed was in a bundle on his back. On his journey, on his way, he got into conversation with an old man. This old man prayed with him and he said to him, be a good man, give your heart to Christ and pay the Lord the full tithe. And the young Colgate remembered that. He came to New York. In New York, he went to church because he'd been brought up to go to church. He remembered what the man had said, give your heart to Christ. He heard the gospel explained in the church and he did that thing. He gave his heart to Christ. He became a Christian. And then he remembered the other thing the man had said, pay the Lord the full tithe. And so as soon as he got a job, he decided one tenth of what I have is going to the Lord's work. He soon found a job in New York. His job was as an apprentice in a soap factory. As time went on, he did very well and became a partner in that factory. Then his other partner died and he became the owner of what became the largest soap company in the USA. And from soap, they went into toothpaste and various other things. But from the day he had his first pay packet, he gave 10% to the Lord. But as the business grew, as he prospered, he increased the 10% to 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%. And then towards the end of his working life, he was a very rich man. He paid for his family to be educated. He provided for his elderly parents. And then he decided he would give all of his income to the Lord's work. He said, I have more than enough to live on. Everything now is the Lord's. And he prospered more than ever. As a result of that, he founded the American Bible Society. He supported the American Trust Society. He supported missionaries, temperance movements, educational establishments. He established a Colgate University. He supported pastors and churches. A wonderful example who took very literally those words that we give as we have prospered proportionately to the Lord. Now, I'm not saying we all follow his example, but what I am saying is it's a very good principle to tithe our money to the Lord. Tithes and offerings. When our income is received, the Lord's portion should be set aside. Doesn't matter how we do it, cash, direct debit, stewardship, whatever, doesn't matter. But the important thing is that comes first. Why? Remember, all that we have comes from God. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
what we are doing is seeking to honour God. And as we seek to honour God, so he promises to bless us. Just a word of caution here. A survey was done recently in the USA, and I'm sure it would be true for the UK as well, amongst Christians who go to church who disagree with tithing. And they say, that's an Old Testament thing, we don't have to do it. In fact, they say that because usually they want to give less. And the average that came out in this survey in the USA from those Christians who didn't tithe was they gave 2.5% of their income. Who are the tithes for? They're for pastors. They're for churches. They're for missionaries. They're for Christian workers. They're for the poor, for the needy, the suffering. And so we could go on. So if we're not giving as we should, we rob them as well as robbing God. You may well have heard of a very well-known American called J.D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men in America at his time. As far as I know, he wasn't a believer, but he was brought up to go to church and he was taught to tithe when he was a young man. And he continued that practice through his life. And when he was an older man, he said this on one quite remarkable occasion. He said, I would never have been able to tithe the first million dollars I ever made if I had not tithed my first salary. One dollar, 50 cents a week. The principle is good. The best place to start tithing is as soon as we become a Christian. Difficult perhaps to take that first step, but then as we see God provide for us, so it becomes easier as time goes on. There's the challenge then for us. Are we robbing God? Quickly and lastly to finish, and another great encouragement, we see thirdly here, God blesses. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down such a blessing until there is no more need. God blesses. What an encouragement this is. Who does God say he'll bless? It's those who honour him. Those who bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Yes, pay the tithe financially, but bring also their worship, their time, their talents to the Lord and bring it all before him and put them at his disposal. We get that lovely promise in 1 Samuel 2 verse 30, where God says, those who honour me, I will honour. As we honour God in our giving, giving our money, giving our time, giving our talents, giving our worship, the wonderful thing is that God blesses. You know, God's maths are not like ours. In our maths, we have, we give away, we have less. But in God's maths, we have, we give away, we have more. We don't give away in order to get more. We give away in order to honour God. But God will often bless us by giving more. It's for those who honour him and it's for those who trust him. You see, this requires faith. This requires trust to give these things to God. And God says, test me in this. As far as I know, this is the only time in the whole of the Bible when we are invited to test God. Listen to what he says. Thereby puts me to the test 
and see if I will not open those windows of heaven for you. In other words, trust me, put me to the test and prove my faithfulness to you. Remember, Paul could write in Philippians 4, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He promises our need, not our greed. One person wrote this and said, In the light of God's promises, believers who refuse to give obediently don't have a money problem. They have a trust problem, a problem in trusting God to meet their needs. But what blessings does God promise to give? Well, he says, you return to me and you will receive those blessings of salvation. See if I won't open those windows of heaven and pour you out these blessings. The picture there comes to my mind of an Advent calendar. We've been through Advent and many, I'm sure, have opened a, a window each day. Maybe a verse of the Bible inside, maybe some chocolate inside, maybe all sorts of other things in this day and age. But we open a window and see what's behind it. And it's as if God has an advent calendar and he says, you honour me and you have a glimpse into those windows of my blessing. What have I got in heaven for you? And we have a look and see in one window there's grace. Another window, there's mercy. Another window, there's compassion. Another window, there's love. Another window, there's forgiveness. Another window, there's eternal life. Another window, there's answer prayer. And we could go on and we could go on. And God says, you honour me and see if I won't open those windows of blessing and pour out such blessing until there is no more need. God blesses those who trust him those who trust him for salvation and with their life, for those who seek to prove him, who honour him with their money, their time, their talents, their worship, who bring the full tithe before God. In other words, don't shortchange God. Wait for the blessing. And so at the beginning of this new year, as we look back over the last year, I'm sure that we can all see areas in our lives and we are guilty of having robbed God of what we should have given to him. But as we look forward now to the new year, we have the encouragement that we have an unchanging God. We have the encouragement of a God who desires to bless his people. But we have the challenge that we bring the full tithe into the storehouse. We don't hold back from God. We give God his due and we wait for him to start opening those windows of heaven and pouring out those blessings upon us. What a wonderful thing it would be if this year, 2023, we could see here in our church and in our land some of those windows of heaven being opened and God saying, I'll give you this blessing. I'll give you that blessing. Here's another one, because I can see that you are honouring me. You are seeking to serve me, to love me with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, to love your neighbour as yourself. What a blessing it would be. So may we be a people that so honour God that he may begin to open some of those windows of heaven this year and pour down his blessing upon us. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word this morning. And Father, we know that your word speaks to very real situations. And I'm sure that we can, each one, confess before you 
that in the last year that we have robbed you, we have robbed you of all sorts of things, maybe our money, maybe our time, maybe our worship, maybe our abilities, whatever it may be. Lord, we are sorry. We pray that you would help us to put those things right. Thank you for that wonderful promise that if we return to you, you will return to us. Oh, Father, we pray. May we look forward to this coming year and we would ask that we might know more of your blessing upon our lives, more of your blessing upon our church, that you might begin to open those windows of heaven because we are a people who trust you and seek to honour you. Grant it, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.